Welcome to Negotiation with Alice, your negotiation podcast. I am here to answer all your questions about anything and everything negotiation-based. It can be about something with your children, your spouse, your friends, your colleagues, your family, your parents. Come on the show, ask me a question, and I will give you negotiation advice. Welcome to the show. Today, I'd like to welcome Carl Zuchiat. Carl, you and I, I believe, met and you are in Minneapolis. Is that right? Yep, the Minneapolis area. And Carl is an attorney who does a lot of estate planning. And so, Carl, I would love for you to introduce yourself to our audience. Hi, everyone. I'm Carl Suchia. I'm an attorney with Helmuth & Johnson Peace LLC uh, in the Minneapolis area, uh, Edina, Minnesota. I've been practicing for just over 10 years now uh, in the estates and trust area. Um, and love to be on the podcast today. Thank you very much, Alistair, for the opportunity. And I think that one, uh, the question you're going to ask is revolving around some of the cases that you're doing. So I'd love to know what you'd like to know today. Yes, I'm having um, a, a lot of enjoyment and success um, with agricultural families in the last couple of years, um, growing part of my practice. And so dealing with a lot of families on the front end with estate planning, helping usually mom and dad plan for how do we set up a plan to set up and um, give our child or children the best opportunity to continue farming the family farm, um, where you may have one or more children that are farming and then one or more children who are not farming and how do you negotiate around that. And then also on the administration side, um, if mom and dad have passed away, leaving the children, um, how do the children work out amongst themselves how to divide up the inheritance that mom and dad have left when there is a family farm um, where one child needs it and the other children do not need the farm? Wonderful. So I'd love to start with the first question when it's just the the parents and they're trying to figure out how to pass this on to their um, heirs. When they're having these conversations with you, are they bringing along the voices of their kids or are they trying to do this in a vacuum without asking their kids? Um, it's all over the place. Most of the time, my conversations are just with mom and dad because they are my clients. I am a big proponent and I see a lot of great success when after that initial kind of design and consultation, meaning I tell the parents that it's not required, but it usually goes much better if they involve their children in the discussion um, so that the kids feel like they have a hand in the process. The ultimate decision is mom and dad. No one can tell them what to do. But if the children are part of the discussion and some you know, decision making, then there's buy-in by the children um, and the chance of conflict and friction later on is much lower in my, in my experience. Absolutely. So I'm going to just put on my mediator hat for a moment and suggest that um, when there's a negotiation going on, and I, I'm usually mediating, if all the stakeholders are not present, it doesn't come out with like the best resolution because you're missing stakeholders. And so in your particular instance, the kids, the adult children are actually stakeholders. And so I understand the parents desire to say, oh, we want to gift this thing to them. And, you know, when we leave, this is what we want to leave them. But if you're missing half of the voices, you might want to let them know that 
if the stakeholders, are, if all of them are not there, the whole deal can fall apart after they're gone. Because, you know, everyone has a different idea. Someone might get an inheritance that they don't want anything to do with, right? And so then that is going to cause friction later on. And when they're trying to figure out what's fair, everyone has a different idea of what is fair. And it's not a good barometer to say, let's just make it fair. Let's give everyone equal shares because people are different. Their needs are different. Their wants are different. Um, their level of engagement in some kind of responsibility of owning something, right? If they're being gifted a farm, that's different. And so the concept of let's make a fair deal with missing stakeholders is a very big error. Now, I had something very similar to what you're talking about when the parents have already passed away and there were six siblings and they they didn't gift a farm, but they gifted the family home. Mm -hmm. And the idea was, this is our family home. You grew up in this home, so we're giving it to you. And you can use it as a safe haven if someone needs a place to live or if you want to have gatherings together. This is what we would like for you to do with it. What the parents did not anticipate, and now they're gone, so it's too late to change it, is that all six of them did not have the same idea. So one of them didn't want to have anything to do with it, didn't want to have any responsibility, didn't want to have the liabilities that are associated with it. And one other sibling was working with an attorney to draft a will. And when the attorney talked to him, he said, what are all of your assets? And this home, the one sixth ownership of this home came up. And he said, I don't think I want to gift my children one sixth ownership of a home that they have like no sentimental, you know, attachment to. And so suddenly he was forced to go and ask for his siblings for a buyout, which really wrecked all of the siblings' close relationships with one another. This is something that the parents probably never ever dreamed of. The other siblings never dreamed that this would happen, but this was reality. And it's because the stakeholders were not brought in at the front end to say, what do you want if we are going to like gift this to you all? Yeah, you're absolutely right. I see that a lot on the administration side that mom and dad believe that, of course, when they're gone, everything will be fine. All right. There's faith that, you know, when we're gone, the kids will, of course, get along. And I see this a lot, not just with family farms, but in your example, the primary home where they grew up um, here in Minnesota. We have a lot of this stuff with the family cabin up north. We see this a lot. We see the same thing with hunting land. All right. Where you have an asset like real estate that, you know, people want one six each like your situation here. All right. But maybe they don't want the actual land itself. Maybe they just want their value share of the total inheritance. So they want to be purchased, bought out by their siblings. And that kind of throws a grenade sometimes in that relationship unexpectedly, uh, where you may not expect the kind of responses from your siblings. Um, that's where, from the planning standpoint, it's important to have the parents in control of the asset, 
have that conversation first between the two of them and then second with their stakeholders, their children, to set up a plan that works for everyone. Because if you just take the simple path of leaving something like a home or a cabin directly to your, your children outright, and they become undivided one-sixth owners, right? you're essentially forcing your children into business with each other. Right? They're, they're stuck with each other. And generally in that situation, nothing can get done unless there's unanimous agreement. And then on top of that, if there's nothing that changes on and people are free to devise their share to their heirs, you can have ownership from one married couple to six children. And then if people pass away, six can become 12, can become 30. And now you have a huge mess from an ownership standpoint that will have to be resolved sometime in the future. Absolutely. And unwittingly, sometimes parents might end up, like you mentioned, blowing up the relationship between the siblings, right? Where they might be very close, they might be very loving, but when they're forced into a business agreement, sort of unwittingly, because the parents have put them in that position, frequently, because everyone is uh, jockeying for what's fair, and every single person has a different opinion of what is fair to them, um, it's all of a sudden breaking apart the very fabric of what the parent is like the opposite of what the parents want, right? The parents Absolutely. are feeling like I'm giving this love, this symbol of love in, in the form of a farm or a home. And we love our children and they're very close and we're gifting it to them. And all of a sudden that symbol of love turns into a conflict, which yeah. starts to drive a wedge between their children who prior to inheriting this were very close and very happy. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And then goes along with that is you get the benefit that now I inherited one sixth of this family property from my parents, but I am also responsible for one sixth of the cost. So what happens then if you have a child that you know, uses it more than the other siblings but stops paying toward the upkeep and maintenance and costs. You've got a freeloader situation there. And that's when, you know, there's going to be more friction. There's going to be building resentment usually against that child who is not paying their fair share and something's going to give at some point in the future. Absolutely. Uh, that's the part. Yeah. And, you know, like you said, there could be someone who is using it more and not paying. There also could be situations where someone cannot meet their financial obligation because mm -hmm. they're making significantly less than their siblings. Absolutely. Yeah. Mom and dad need to recognize that, you know, in these situations, you'd love to pass on the family cabin, the family farm to your children, but you have to have the honest conversation about can they afford to maintain these properties, right? How many thousands of dollars a year does it take to maintain a vacation home like a cabin? And can a child afford to do that? You know, that that's a hard question. They may love it, all right? But if you really want it, certain sacrifices have to be made to maintain it. And in the same sense, you know, once it becomes another generation removed, meaning going to their grandchildren, a lot of times the grandchildren don't have the same interest that the original like kids have mm -hmm. right and Absolutely. so suddenly they let's say there are 
12 grandkids and now they're each inheriting some very small fraction. And so like you mentioned earlier, it becomes four, then 12, then 20. And now mm-hmm. everyone has like one twentieth. It's very difficult to have 20 people come to the exact same resolution of what they want to do with this. And so it starts to become very, very hairy, a very huge conflict. And sometimes it goes to litigation, which now they're spending a lot of money fighting over what to do with pieces of this property that were was gifted originally by very loving parents, right? Who it want to is. Yeah. pass on yeah. generational wealth. Yeah. That litigation is usually a partition action where if the kids or grandkids can't figure out, they can't negotiate around some sort of resolution, you have to get the court involved. And there's three blunt resolutions. It's you buy me out, I buy you guys out, or the court orders a sheriff sale and nobody gets it. We just split the cash. And that is uh, very unappealing, but at the end of the day does happen because people just can't find a common ground to you know, divest themselves of their interest and get what they feel would be a fair price for their inheritance. Um, and it's not just the dollar amount, but sometimes you're buying out the emotional connection that your sibling or your grand the grandchild has. Um, so you, you know, there's a premium that people place on their inheritance share beyond just the fair market value of the property itself, which is hard. All right. How do you put a value on emotions in this case? It's difficult. I would say that as an estate planning lawyer, for as yourself, um, the first negotiation would be with parents who are not necessarily wanting to include their children in the conversation. And the negotiation would be around the fact that um, whether they realize it or not, their kids are actual very important stakeholders in this business deal and that they should not be putting together a business deal without input from everyone who's going to be part of that business because basically they're making their children business owners together as you mentioned earlier and if you're not getting everyone's input there's going to be conflict almost certainly wondered how do I get my spouse to do more of their share of the chores or you figure how can I convince them to go on this vacation you're basically negotiating so if you'd like to get better at negotiations so that you can have better outcomes in your life please check out Alice's negotiation courses you can find them at negotiationwithalice.com. Please visit my website, come and join and be a part of our small group negotiation course, and I will get your negotiation chops a lot sharper. No, absolutely. Yeah, it it is. And even taking a step back, sometimes I even find it's a negotiation between the parents. All right. Parent one wants to do this, but parent two wants this cabin or this farmland to go somewhere else. So, you know, you have to start there. Are they, as a married couple, singing from the same hymn sheet here? Um, If so, great, then let's involve the kids. So like you're saying, and like I'm a big proponent of, let's have them, these interested parties, feel like they have some sort of input and stake in the outcome. And we can craft a plan 
around what they want. Do they really want the farm? Can they really afford to own the farm or the cabin? If you've got a child that has moved out east here, uh, like in Minnesota here, a family farm in southwest Minnesota, but the kid has moved out east, all right, they don't want the farm, all right? They, they just, they're interested in maybe something else that mom and dad can offer. So what do mom and dad feel is equitable and fair amongst their children to make sure that at the end of the day, they're leaving their children in the best possible scenario for continued future relationships where money is not a source of friction. Money in terms of actual cash or investments or more difficult, land. Land like home, farm, hunting land, cabin, all that stuff can surprisingly become a real point of conflict if there isn't an open discussion about it in the planning part. Absolutely. And even though uh, siblings all come from the same family or, you know, sometimes can come from the same family, they may not have the same values and they may not think of the same things as equally important. Mm -hmm. So for some people, the freedom to not have that responsibility is of higher value than, say, having a piece of it. And for others, it might be, hey, I'd like to have the cash to be able to will that to my own children, right? And that is more valuable. So it's very difficult to say, let's just divide this up by one sixth. Let's say that everyone is one sixth owner because everyone has different values. Even if you are siblings, different things are more important. And so parents should at the very least, even if they are not um, negotiating with their children, let's say they come in, they're not willing to, you know, negotiate with their children, the least that they can do is interview each of their kids to find out what's most important to them Mm -hmm. and really find out their interests if they were going to receive anything from them, whether it's the farm, whether it's a payout, because some of the kids might say, I don't want the farm. I I don't want any of that. Um, You know, I'd like to have some value, but I don't want the actual real estate. Mm -hmm. Right. And so- Yeah, it's yeah. it's be- I would recommend to most clients that come that I see is, you know, have those conversations. Uh, do not assume that you know what they want because they're their own adults now, and they, you know, th- their answers can and do surprise you sometimes. That you know, I don't want the farm. I want my brother who is farming to have the farm. I'm okay with that. Right? I I don't need to own this asset that kind of thing, or the cabin or, or your house and whatever it may be, right? It, it's it's best not to assume, just get the straight answer. Uh, be willing to ask those questions. Exactly. I mean, one of the siblings might just say, look, I don't want the farm, but I would love to have a lifetime supply of milk and eggs for free, right? Mm-hmm. As long as that farm is going or, or something like that or, or profit off of the farm. So there are ways to structure a deal where it is fair to everyone, but parents do not know unless they actually interview them. And so um, one of the negotiation concepts I'd like to talk about is interest-based versus position-based. And position-based would set, would be basically parents saying, I want everyone to just have an equal share of the thing that we're you know, giving to them. But interest-based really means that you talk very deeply to find out what's important to each child, what do they value, what things do they want versus what don't they want, and why. 
And they should really ask deeper and deeper questions like, why wouldn't you want the farm? Um, you know, why would you not want to have the equal amount for all of these reasons, right? And once they have a deeper understanding of everyone's interests, they should be able to craft a much better deal that will not destroy the relationship between their children once they are gone. Yeah, absolutely. And to build on that is that's an ongoing conversation too, because if your children are in their you know early part of building a family, their needs are different when their children are 10 and under versus if that conversation happens later in life and their kids are out of college and independent now, all right, that child's needs and wants and desires are going to be completely different from when they were raising a young family. So that is not just a one and done situation, but that's revisit that conversation because people's priorities change with where they sit in their life at that point as well. Absolutely. And you know, the other thing too, Carl, is that I feel like culture to culture, these things are different. Um, you and I come from the Japanese culture and I know in my family, it they don't really want to talk about money intergenerationally, mm. right? It's a little bit of a private topic. My parents don't want to openly share, this is what we have, this is what we're going to do, right? Those conversations are in the same bucket as religion and politics, which is yes. something that you don't talk about. It and is a so, bit taboo, yes. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's different and more difficult based on what kind of culture you're coming from. And so I really encourage people who are coming from those cultures to try to somehow open the door into those conversations because it is important. You don't want a close-knit family being torn apart because you did not want to have those conversations when you were alive and everyone is well and everyone is healthy. No, that's absolutely right. And I think that close-knit family part, in my experience with individuals like that, is a real motivator for them to have those conversations and break through that level of uncomfortableness that they may have with having those conversations. Because in my own experience, in my own family, also, you know, it's family first. I don't know if you've heard that yourself, but family first. And so, you know, take care of the family. If family first means you have to kind of you know, rip the bandaid and have that conversation, then do it. Because if you don't, you are having an increased risk that lack of conversation is going to jeopardize the family cohesion, which is in my family, something that we really try to avoid. As much of those conversations may be uncomfortable, they're seen as uncomfortably necessary to maintain the family. Absolutely. Right. So if you want as parents, if you want to gift something to your children and it happens to come in the form of some kind of a, a real estate or a farm, I do think one of the other things that you need to give gift your kids is the gift of closeness forever. And by that, I mean, have those conversations early and before you're gone, because then you really can keep the family closeness intact if you avoid those conversations and you figure, well, they'll just figure it out once we're gone, you run the risk of ruining the relationships with your children. Yes. It's better to have the negotiation on the front end with the planning than leave it to your children to negotiate some way out of dividing your estate afterwards because you'll be gone. Um, so we can't ask you any questions or ask you for any guidance. Um, so it's better to 
discuss it up front. If you're comfortable, if you have the family situation where you can have that conversation, I always encourage clients to do it. Uh, it usually significantly mitigates the chances of a conflict later on. Absolutely. And I've seen cases where the parents are already gone and the best that the adult children can do is say, well, I believe mom and dad would have wanted it this way. So mm -hmm. everyone is sort of interpreting. So it's open to interpretation. Nothing is super clear. So everyone is having to guess and they're guessing from their own perspectives, right? So it's going to be slightly different based on what perspective they're coming from. Someone might say, well, I think mom and dad would feel like it was fair if I wanted out that I get bought out. And other people say, I think mom and dad did not ever expect anyone to be bought out Right. And so now you're causing that conflict. So definitely it's not something that is easy to resolve uh, once the parents are gone, because all that's left is a guessing game by the kids. Yeah, absolutely right. And if you don't leave clear instruction, then those kinds of arguments, this is what I believe they would have wanted, are kind of emotional based arguments. But in the court of in, in the eyes of the law, they will be given the, the weight that they deserve. I mean, you know, if they leave something in writing, all right, that's pretty undis indisputable uh, versus if you're going to bring in hearsay evidence, well, this is what they told me, that's not going to generally win the day. And that kind of gray area is what I try to avoid in the estate planning that I do to avoid that. Because at the end of the day, you want your estate to pass on to your heirs or beneficiaries as efficiently and quickly as possible. And if you don't leave clear instructions, you open the door further for conflict and potential litigation, which means that whatever you leave behind, a good chunk of that may be eaten up in legal fees. And so your children or heirs will receive less because of the gray area that you leave behind. Absolutely. Yes, this was really wonderful. Carl, if you could just briefly mention, because I know I've got a lot of clients who... Um, come through divorce mediation and frequently they ask their homeowners and they'll ask like, why do we need an estate plan? So mm -hmm. if you could sort of just highlight what happens if people don't have an estate plan and they pass and they've got children and own property, sort of what are they looking at? In Minnesota, um, if an individual passes on, um, if they have Certain assets, first we'll see, are those assets jointly held with someone, right of survivorship, a spouse, for example, all right? That's a non-probate asset that'll just pass to the survivor. Um, otherwise, does the asset have a beneficiary designation? If so, and that beneficiary survives that person, then that asset will pass on to that person, the named beneficiary. If neither of those things happen, then that asset becomes a probate asset and probate through the local court uh, where that person resided or where the asset is located is going to be necessary here in Minnesota, uh, depending on the structure and, uh, and size of that person's estate, uh, whether it's indebted or not, you could have something as simple as an informal unsupervised probate, which is kind of what everybody seeks, or you have to go more formal where there's actual hearings and court reporting necessary, um, which uh, is necessary sometimes, especially if there's minor children. If you have a will, that will will be admitted to court for a probate. Um, if you don't have a will, Minnesota laws of intestate succession will control, in which case the first one to receive would be the spouse. Uh, second would be the children and any further descendants. 
Um, and then you kind of go up and out on the family tree from there. So your distant relative could end up inheriting your estate um, if you have no will. Uh, and that person may not know it's coming. Um, and that process through probate is, it, it's a great process. It's its nice to have there, but it's easily avoidable with some basic estate planning to keep your estate out of probate because probate is a public process. Everything is available, especially today. Uh, Minnesota, I believe it's the same in most states is you can pull up your phone and you can find out what's in someone's probate matter because it's all public. Um, so the financials of that person when they died, that's public. Who are their heirs? That's public. If that's something that's important for you to keep confidential, some basic estate planning like a trust is the best way to go. Absolutely. Because you don't want some long lost cousin showing up saying, hey, I saw, you know, in the public records that this mm -hmm. thing is here and uh, I would like to, you know, litigate to get some piece of it. Right. I mean, these Absolutely. are things that can happen. Yeah. Yeah, either that or, you know, because it's public, it doesn't happen a lot, but there are attempts for phishing scams where there are scammers out there that will watch some filings. And if they see a target, they may try to reach out to that individual who may be inheriting from their parent or what have you. And there is some vulnerability there. Uh, so to avoid that possibility, you keep it confidential, you keep it out of the court system and you have a revocable trust and a trust administration is not public, it's confidential, it does not go through the court system. Um, so that potential weakness of, of a public process is avoided. Absolutely. And also, you know, people might say, well, I don't want to pay this money for putting together an estate plan, but it's significantly cheaper than going through probate, right? It absolutely is. An estate plan like a trust is going to be more expenses on the front end, but the tail end of that for administration is much, much less than a probate process. Um, so it's a little bit more upfront, but a lot less later on. And it's really what kind of administration do you want to leave behind for your heirs, your wife, your husband, your children, your brothers or sisters, uh, whoever is going to inherit your estate, what do you want to set up for them? If you want it to be as easy and uh, uh, simple and low cost as possible, then setting up an estate plan with a revocable trust is generally the best way to do it. Um, otherwise, you are potentially looking at, you know, leaving your heirs with a couple thousand dollars worth of legal fees to help them get through the process through a probate. Um, so in my opinion, you know, take it with a grain of salt because you're hearing it from an estate planning attorney. Uh, it's better to invest that money on the front end so that you set up your descendants for an easier administration later on. I'm totally with you on that, Carl. As a mediator, I see a lot of conflict coming through. And so I think the the better you plan, uh, the, the better it is for your future, your children's future and whatnot, because you want to have the least amount of expenses and the least amount of conflict as possible. So I'm totally in your camp with that. Thank you so much, Carl, for showing up today. I really appreciate the value that you gave to my audience today. And um, if people want to work with you, how can they get in touch with you? Yep. I'm um, so I'm again, I'm with Hamilton Johnson uh, in Edina, Minnesota. Um, you can call our office at 952-941-4005. Um, you can also email me at kcchia, T-S-U-C-H-I-Y-A 
at hjlawfirm.com. Awesome. And I'll have that information in the show notes for our listeners if you want to reach out to Carl. And Carl, are you um, licensed only in uh, Minnesota or are you licensed in other states as well? Uh, I'm licensed in Minnesota and Wisconsin, and I am working on my licensure for North Dakota, South Dakota, and Iowa. So I hope to have those done as well. I'm looking at the whole region. Thank you for tuning in to Negotiation with Alice, your negotiation podcast. It's been a pleasure having you be part of the conversation. Please hit like, share, and subscribe, and we'll see you next time. If you enjoyed my podcast, Negotiation with Alice, and are interested in working with me to level up your negotiation, communication, and persuasion skills, please check out ShekinahNegotiationAcademy.com. That's Shakina spelled S-H-I-K-I-N-A, NegotiationAcademy.com. See you on the next podcast.